This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. So I'm Anna Buzzotti, and this is Stephanie Malia Holm, and she's a professor. Uh, and I'm not going to do the whole introduction because you have it in your brochure and you can look it up and we want to spend more time talking about the film, right? So, um, uh, but you may want to tell them about your areas of interest because they are germane to this. Yes, yeah, so, um, hi everyone. I'm Stephanie Moyoham, as Anna said. I'm a professor of transnational Italian studies here at UCSB in the Department of French and Italian and my areas of research include tourism, migration, and mobility, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. And, and, and this is a film about tourism, migration, and mobility, right? <laughs> and so that's, that's exactly what we're doing here. So uh, let me start by introducing Camilleri, who wrote these books, right? Camilleri, Andrea Camilleri, who died two years ago, uh, was this very prolific writer who wrote about 100 books, and I'm sure many of you have read some of them. They've been translated in every language. Um, and uh, uh, Camilleri was somebody who started late to write books. He was kind of a college dropout first, then he started to uh, get into the theater, eventually started to direct, and went on right, to actually teach uh, theater. And apparently one of the students he had at some point was Luca Zingaretti, the guy who plays Montalbano, right? Um, so Camilleri is somebody who writes these books and starts with the Montalbano character. And at some point, right, true to the Sicilian heritage, I mean, he, in a Pirandellian way, says at some point that the character started to haunt him. He had to write more. But what who really haunted him, apparently, was his, his uh, editor, who uh, you know, realized that these were going to sell well and uh, prompted him to write more and more and more. So, so uh, um, Camilleri wrote about 100 books, more or less, short, long, small, you know, kind of uh, collecting short stories, etc. But the Montalbano books are about 30. And from 30 books, there are 37 episodes over the course of 20 years here. 15 seasons, uh, 20 years, 37 episodes, and each one is an hour and a half. How does this kind of system, right? I mean, you, you think about it. I mean, these were deliriously successful, the books and the episodes. So why not more, right, I mean, than, than 37? Because Italian television, which was born in 1954, uh, Italian television was actually born the way in which, you know, was born from, from, from the parameters that had been set up for radio. And uh, it was imitating the kind of model that the BBC had. American television was born uh, commercial, as a commercial enterprise. Italian television was supposed to have the three principles. It was supposed to inform, to entertain, and to educate. Uh, basically, two out of three were supposed to be boring, right? So uh, informing and educating, and Italian television had, you know, if you look at the archives, um, wonderful programs, lots of theaters, all kinds of beautiful uh, interpretations, you know, great acting, etc., etc. 
And then what happened? <laughs> that uh, uh, other, right? I mean, the uh, Rai was a monopoly, basically. They had two channels, then they introduced the third. By the 70s, other kind of independent televisions uh, were uh, starting to creep up, and they were broadcasting from abroad, right outside the borders or something, right? Capodistria. I mean, those are the ones that, that we used to watch. Uh, and uh, so basically, th this was open, opened up, I mean, it kind of undermined the monopoly. And at the same time, it opened up all kinds of possibilities. So what was the problem? That Rai detained the right to broadcast across the entire country. The other ones could only do it locally. And how did they get around it? By, basically, when Berlusconi, right, had the great idea, uh, famous Berlusconi, of uh, just simply broadcasting bits and pieces, but the same programs. And that was it, right? And that was the change that, that was able to uh, completely change the monopoly of Italian Rai. Um, Umberto Eco called these two stages, the before the 70s and after the 70s, or rather before the 80s and after the 80s, the paleo-television and the neo-television. And that, those were the two stages, right? And so what the neo-television was, was in competition with all kinds of cheap programming that was supposed to be kind of the equivalent of reality programming, right? I mean, and that was the idea. And, and so by the time we get to the neo-television, it becomes, you know, a free-for-all. And Rai tries to compete and tries to, you know, keep up with uh, the uh, kind of, you know, debasing the programming, so to speak, and keeping up. And the Berlusconi era, you know, turns everything into a, a uh, kind of a show of uh, uh, reality, you know, women in scantily dressed and so on and so forth, and you probably, you know, I've seen some Italian television. So now, uh, after, you know, Montalbano marked a moment when Italian television was trying to recuperate a little bit of the higher ground that they had um, programming stuff and directing, you know, and having people uh, propose, right, projects like this. And, uh, and, and this was very, very successful. Uh, why? Well, one, Sicily, right? Um, Italians didn't know Sicily very well. I mean, that was part of the problem. Uh, Sicily is a beautiful place, and you can see how, you know, the ocean is always there. Uh, Salvo uh, Montalbano goes swimming all the time. There is almost every episode has him swimming, him walking on the beach, and cetera, and cetera, and all these beautiful places. And that was one thing. And then the other reason why this is so successful is because Montalbano is a flawed character, right, is very flawed. And you can see, right, how he's uh, uh, trying to make, uh, uh, you know, kind of to uphold his ethic. Uh, and then the other one was recuperating the educational and the informative parts. I mean, you can see how in this film, uh, the film opens, right, with the denunciation of the Genoa uh, riots, basically, right, at the moment when the police starts shooting and, and they actually, you know, kill the protester. Uh, and so it, be, it opens with that, with that statement and Montalbano wants to resign and so on and so forth. So there are many, many reasons why, right, this is successful. But also because basically who is the audience for this film? 
this is a very conventional kind of procedural type of you know, film. Uh, the audience is somebody who is older than the uh, people who are not watching television, basically. And so the audience actually grew older with Montalban, right? Over the course of 20 years, first they started to read the books, and then over the course of 20 years, you know, we all grew older with uh, the uh, uh, commissar, I mean, with the uh, commissario Montalbano. Uh, and so it becomes this kind of lovable, right, appointment. I mean, the, uh, the entire family could agree on uh, watching Montalbano, and that's, you know, of course. And, and I hope you're going to talk a little bit about the other side of the programming, right, that is uh, quite popular now. With, uh, uh, so, for instance, one of the big uh, things is in Montalbano is that even when the mafia is mentioned, um, Camilleri wanted to make sure that he was never the protagonist of right, the film, not because it's not an uncomfortable presence, but because it did not want to you know, have that as the only subject for the film. And Camilleri co-wrote, uh, I think, almost all of these uh, things. And they were also an exception in the television programming because they were directed by the same person, Cironi, directed all of them until he died, and the last three were co-directed by uh, Zingaretti, by Luca Zingaretti, the actor, uh, who went on to direct you know, himself in these films. So, but there are many, many things that we can say about, and this is why you're going to be so incredibly, you know, incredibly interesting in this, because uh, I like to hear more of what you think about the uh, situation uh, with the crime in the film, how the film portrays. Well, that is a great question. Thank you for, for giving us the context of Italian television. And I also wanted to thank the team here at Carsey Wolf for having us here today and all of you uh, in the audience. Uh, the idea of crime is really interesting in this show, and um, it's something that I've thought a lot about. In fact, in the fall, I ta taught a course called Crime Italian Style, in which we, we spent a lot of time on the mafia as well as other aspects of Italian crime. And we can come back to the mafia, but what, what I wanted to kind of set the scene with, um, re-watching this episode again, one of the conversations that stood out to me was the conversation between Montalbano and his friend Nicola Zito at right. lunch, in which uh, Zito turns to Montalbano and says, why do you care about these poor people anyway, questi poveracci? And Montalbano says, well, you know, we're Sicilians. My dad was in Stuttgart, and there was a sign on the window that said, dogs and Sicilians not allowed. So it's our, we were once unwelcome. We were once the poveracci. And so now it's, you know, and implicit in that statement is the reason why Montalbano cares. But also in that statement it shows how Sicily, Sicily is a place with a, is a crossroads in the Mediterranean, has been long linked to places elsewhere, right? If we think about Italian Americans and the, the great numbers of Sicilians mm -hmm. who came in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, and uh, how the, those emigrants also experienced a lot of discrimination uh, and violence. Um, one of the episodes that we talked about, not episodes, one of the, the events that we talked about in my crime class was the mass lynching of Italian-Americans in 1891, Sicilians um, in New Orleans. 
And so there's a long history and a long almost heritage Mm -hmm. of discrimination and violence of being the immigrants. Um, And so when, when Montalbano says this, he's connected to this, these current flows of migrants coming to Sicily, primarily from sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa. There is a well-established central Mediterranean route um, that goes through uh, from the, the Horn of Africa through Libya and then landing in Lampedusa. So the references that were being made to bodies in the Sicilian Channel are often from these crossings that are made. And in 2005, when this episode was filmed, uh, the crossings predominantly were seasonal. They weren't, um, in terms of numbers, it wasn't, it hasn't, wasn't at a peak at all. The numbers have grown uh, exponentially. You know, by the time, uh, in 2011, we have Arab Spring that happens, and there are hundreds of thousands of people crossing. Um, and by 2017 with Syria, you know, there, the numbers, again, keep increasing. And I know that the, the, the organizations that, that perform rescues in the Mediterranean have told me that um, it's no longer seasonal. You know, it used to be in the summer, right. like the crossings were attempted, but now it is year-round. Right. And so um, my point here is that Sicily becomes this protagonist, and Sicilians and their history, uh, this emigration history, connects to right. the immigration present. And so, um, and we can talk about migration and the criminalization of migration, which is something that has been um, escalating in Italy in the last five years. And I think that's also one of the details, uh, what you mentioned, goes to the educational purpose of Mm -hmm. this kind of things, right? Look, we were the ones that were, you know, like dogs. So now, right, and that's that's part of what Rai, you know, is supposed to be doing and goes Mm -hmm. back to doing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's it's great. Um, Camilleri also um, is somebody who gifts, right, the language, the Sicilian Mm -hmm. thickness of the language. Sometimes I had, I'm from the north, so, you know, basically diagonal on the opposite side. And, and I had to read the subtitles sometimes because it's uh, very difficult to get, you know, all the nuances of the uh, Sicilian. And Camilleri, the writer, does not, you know, take any prisoners from this. I mean, it's like if you, if you don't understand it, just get it from the context. I'm not going to translate it for you. This is us, right? And this is the gift. Uh, of the language and the vividness of the language. And so now many of these words have entered, right, mm-hmm. uh, the thing. And, and I mentioned before, uh, when we were talking, we're coming in, the fact that now this Sicily has become, right, I mean, this particular program has uh, really contributed to the tourism so much, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because um, it has put basically many of these places on the map to the point that... Um, Porto and Pedocle kind of added Vigata to the name or something. Vigata is a fictional place. It doesn't exist, but people are looking for it. <laughs> and, and that's the point, right? And so you see all these beautiful Baroque towns, you know, that, that uh, it kind of, the, the film spreads it around. Uh, the place where Montalbano lives is in Shikli, right? Which is, as you were saying, mm. you know, you were, cruised around that area, right, mm-hmm. the uh, southeast uh, of Sicily. But basically, uh, you know, 
it's it's uh, it's something that that has been turned into a, a tourist attraction, and so nobody can get into the city hall because tourists are coming in to watch the places where Montalbano was was being filmed. Mm -hmm. uh, to the point that the, the mayor's uh, you know room uh, has been turned into the. Uh, a tourist attraction, and they had to move the mayor mm -hmm. because everybody wants to go see, right, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So how about the yeah. tourist aspect? That's a, that's a very interesting question because film tourism has a long right. tradition, a long history, and we think of something like Lord of the Rings and the tourism right. industry in New Zealand that has sprung up around that film. In Italy, uh, I would say um, that sort of film tourism in the American imaginary of Italy, centered in the 90s around Under the Tuscan Sun. And the film with Diane Lane and the town of Cortona in Tuscany becomes this destination, right? And then later in the mid-2000s, there's Eat, Pray, Love. So you can go to Rome and see the apartment where Julia Roberts you know, learned to make spaghetti. And, um, with, with Camilleri and Montalbano, this is Italian tourists going right. to Sicily, learning about their own country and and kind of exploring a very particular Sicilian tourist imaginary. And I would say that a parallel phenomenon, phenomenon is also happening in Naples with uh, Ferrante, Elena Ferrante That's tourism, right. and the HBO series, if people have, have seen My Brilliant Friend. So now you can go on Ferrante tours in the same way you can go on Montalbano tours in Sicily. So it's growing, but I think for the Montalbano tourism, it is for an Italian tourist audience. I don't think it is for you know the Americans who are. You're who absolutely are right. Yeah. In fact, I mean, many Italians who have never been to Sicily, they just go to see Montalbano. Yeah. I was looking at the, uh, um, you know, you can rent, you can stay in Montalbano's <laughs> house. Right? I mean, you can. Uh, it's uh, it's expensive, but yes, I mean, you can you can be there. And mm -hmm. so there is an entire way of selling, right, yeah. Sicily, and uh, and people are going along with it because obviously. Well, and in the episode that we watched, I mean, the the finale at that tuna factory. I think that was actually filmed um, in the far northwest of right. the island, whereas a lot of the other in-town uh, scenes were filmed in the far southeast. So it's two completely different parts of the island. Right. And I think part of what the series does is show you, it reveals to you this island and the diversity of Sicily, because um, it's very different in Palermo compared to Catania, compared to Ragusa, even the dialect. And so we were talking earlier about the language and how, you know, I don't know if you could hear it in here, but the farmer that he's interviewing is speaking completely in dialect, right? right? That what he's saying is, would be almost incomprehensible without the subtitles. Whereas Montalbano is speaking uh, with a regional accent, right? And you can and hear. I was making a few notes on some of the words, yeah. right? I mean, so, yeah. I was saying, I mean, it's like Montalbano sono, right? Yeah. Which is not io sono Montalbano. It's just transposing, you know, the words. Mm -hmm. Una mazzatina, mm -hmm. which is anything that is murder. It's a little killing, mm -hmm. right? Una mazzatina. Una mazzatina. <laughs> and then the uh, camurria, which is a big bother, mm -hmm. or the uh, cabazizi, of course, right? Mm -hmm. Which is uh, whatever, right? <laughs> don't, don't bother me. <laughs> and you hear this, this, this connects back to the great Italian neorealist tradition. If right. you think of Visconti and his film La Terra Trema, right. uh, The Earth Trembles in 1948, I think, Everything is in dialect, and you hear this kind of 
richness of the language. And I think Camilleri and Montalbano are recuperating some of this to give this, this, this depth to Italian language. And one thing um, I, I speak about with my students is that Italian, as, as we know it today, is standard Italian, or right. standard, Italiano standard. At the moment of Italian unification in 1861, according to linguist Tullio de Mauro, only 2.5% of the entire country spoke standard Italian. Everyone else spoke dialect. And, and dialects varied from village to village, town to town, region to region, and every dialect was distinct. And it was only with, really, the advent of radio, and especially the advent of television, right. Right. that Italian became standard, right. standardized. And I think with Montalbano, we're seeing this recuperation right. of the richness of language. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a re-gifting, right? Mm-hmm. What has been taken away. Because the standardization of the language meant that everybody spoke this kind of, you know, kind of like the, the Bostonian accent in American films of the 30s or something, right? I mean, it's the same kind of standardized Italian, which is so terrifying. Uh, Monicelli, of course, didn't do that. In his mm-hmm. films, he actually had regional, you know, accents. He had entire groups of, of people speaking different languages. But can you speak a little bit more to this idea of the uh, kind of what the... Uh, the rest of Italy thinks mm. about the South mm. as this mm-hmm. place, right? Well, we really get that in that opening scene with yes. the couple from the North. And the reason it, it, you can identify from the North first is by their name. You know, right. Signori Bauzan. Any name that really ends with, last name that begins with, ends with an N, you're pretty sure it comes from the Veneto, from up yes. north. It's like Cardin. Yes. Carden yeah. was actually Venetian, right, yes. originally. So it's Cardin, anything. So, like that. so that, by their name right. and the accent and the stereotypes right. that they held about, it's like, well, of course I have to carry a gun because everything is criminal and lawless, right? And so uh, the episode's poking fun at that. Right. Because there is this this long-held stereotype of the Italian South as being criminal, uncivilized, backwards, pagan, dirty, uh, impoverished. And it's been given a name as the Southern Question or the Questione Meridionale. And that's a twofold meaning. Like, one, what... What is the South? Right. right. How do we represent the South? And at the time of unification in 1861, how do we integrate this South right. into the idea of a unified Italian country? So here we have um, in this episode just the, the the play on that and kind of poking fun at that. And then when it actually turns out that the Northern couple are breaking the law exactly. because they don't have a exactly. permit to carry arms. Right. And so it actually speaks to this idea of crime in Italy, too, as something that has stereotypically been associated with the South and the Mafia, when in fact it is and continues to be much more widespread throughout the country. In in class, I actually showed a clip from the Manetti Brothers film. It's a musical about the Mafia, right? Um, And they actually showed this little segment uh, making fun of Scampia stereotypes. Mm-hmm. There is an entire group of American tourists uh, who come in. One is robbed and says, 
this is great, right? This is the real experience. We were robbed in Scampia, you know, the place where the Camorra is ruling, right? And so this is not just getting ripped anywhere, right? And, and, uh, and they make fun of it because that's obviously one of the, one of the stereotypes. Absolutely. And what's interesting, too, is that the only inkling one gets of mafia in this episode is the word pizzo, right. which comes up in the conversation about the store, the secondhand store that she the couple that she didn't, she didn't want to pay the pizzo. And the pizzo is a bribe. It's protection money that one right. pays to the local mafia. So she didn't want to pay the pizzo, so the, the store was burned down and they had to rebuild it, etc. But that's it. That's the only passing reference right. that you get right. Um, right. in this episode. Right. Sometimes in other episodes of Montalbano, pits two mafia clans, one against the other. He's always kind of, you know, negotiating. He's mm-hmm. always trying to figure out, you know, the, the best way to go about it. But I think the point you bring up about Scampia, which was... In a, Naples, right? In Naples. Yeah. Scampia is a, was a housing complex um, that was built, I think, in the 60s that has become the center of Camorra operations. And in fact, another great television series is Gomorra about the Camorra based on the Roberto Saviano novel about the uh, Camorra mafia uh, in Naples. And I think comparing that with Montalbano and especially in Sicily, we know the mafia is the Cosa Nostra. Uh, Although arguably, um, you know, some scholars would say that it no longer exists, um, that in fact it is transformed uh, there is a, a recent book that came out uh, by a journalist named uh, Giacomo Di Geralmo called Cosa Grigia. He's been covering organized crime for 25 years in Marsala. And I interviewed him last fall and had him to our crime Italian style class. And what he revealed to the students and to me was that, um, the, the, first of all, the last godfather is still on the run. Right, Matteo Messina Denaro of the kind of old school godfather Don Corleone. Instead, it's become a much more horizontalized operation a la the Camorra in Naples, where there's not necessarily one head godfather, but instead, um, you know, a series of loosely organized clans. And so it's no longer this Cosa Nostra, this our thing. It's become a Cosa Grigia, a gray thing, insofar as operations no longer center on criminal activities, right, like drug trafficking, human trafficking, as we saw here, but rather um, there's a porousness between the licit and the illicit. So a lot of uh, mafia activities center on procuring legal public contracts to build public works. So um, a this, this journalist, Giacomo de Girolamo, shared with us that 70% of public contracts are from the European Union, so these are EU funds, um, 70% of those funds coming to Sicily are siphoned off by organized crime. Fantastic. <laughs> so, and think about this, here's another statistic. Recently, Italy was awarded um, 191 billion euros for COVID recovery. 13.9 billion of that is going to Sicily alone. So you can imagine, oh, yeah. um, you know, follow the money and you will understand where these webs of crime, both licit and illicit, which I think we see in Montalbano because there's a porousness between that, um, where how that has evolved into this 
grey thing. This Ever since I, I've been alive, there's always been the talk about the bridge over the Strait oh, yes. of Messina, mm -hmm. right? And every time that is proposed, it's like, oops, right? is <laughs> <laughs> going to be the costliest, most <laughs> terribly, you know, riddled uh, enterprise. Um, so that's, that's uh, something I, I didn't know about this um, 70%. That's a huge number. Mm -hmm. Terrifying. Mm -hmm. um, so, can we talk a little bit about more about the character again, sure. right? I mean, mm -hmm. the uh, Montalbano. Um, Montalbano has basically three. There are three male characters and three female characters in the film, right? Which is mm -hmm. perfect. And he, Montalbano, has the perfect woman divided by three, basically, <laughs> right? He has the girlfriend that is often not even seen. She doesn't come down. She lives in Genova. She doesn't, you know, move. She's from the north. Um, and every time there are three different actresses that, that played the same role. And every time she's super blonde because she's from the north. Um, and Montalbano loves her. And at the same time, he does, they don't want to be together. They don't want to live together. So one, you know, he is the perfect woman, com a composite of three people. One is the absent girlfriend. The other one is the present best friend who is gorgeous, Swedish, right? Uh, she is rich. She is married to somebody. She is promiscuous. The, the, the husband is just the money, you know, basically the purse. Uh, and she is a race car driver, which comes in handy in some of these episodes because she can <laughs> drive a car anywhere. Um, and she's also the one that constantly accom accompanies him to all his, you know, shenanigans there. Uh, and then there is the third woman, Adelina, who is the woman that can cook. And that's his housekeeper, right? And that's the one that he sometimes even denies himself to his girlfriend in one episode because he wants to go home and eat what Adelina has prepared for him, right? And so you have this perfect, right, kind of composite of the perfect woman. And then the three guys, right? Because in reality, he lives in this homosocial environment, right? Where everybody is, is a man. And there is, you know, Catarella, who is the uh, kind of the Zanni, you know, character from Commedia dell'arte. He's mm -hmm. just a buffoon, but smart. He's the only one who understands computers, paradoxically, <laughs> in the entire place, right? And then there is Fazio. Without Fazio, nothing gets done because he's the efficient one. And then there is Augello, who, I, I mean, I suspect even the name is a joke, you know, on a kind of a, a dirty joke because he's the womanizer. He's the one who is constantly, you know, pursuing women and, and so on and so forth. Um, so the character is this bridge mm -hmm. right, among many different social, social situations. And uh, Sicily, I mean, you, you, you're, you, know, you were a journalist too. I mean, you know, you've investigated. Mm -hmm. uh, talk a little bit about, you know, the, the kind of atmosphere. Mm. That's a great question, because I think um, you touched on a really important topic, which is, you know, the, the gender roles uh, in Sicily and the way that Montalbano navigates through all of them. And in fact, I think that's one of the, the appeal of the character is his ability right. to navigate through what can be very vexed and complicated social relations. And in, in my research, so... Um, I, for several years, studied the festival of St. Agatha in Catania, which is in the eastern part of uh, Sicily, in the shadow of Mount Etna. St. Agatha is one of the earliest Christian saints. She famously um, 
uh, you know, was martyred after being rolled in glass by a Roman proconsul and whole, they a lot would. of horrible, yeah, yeah, horrible things. Um, but if you go to this festival, it takes place February 3rd through 5th. It culminates on the 5th uh, in Catania. Uh, what I've argued in my research is that this festival provides an environment where all of the gender roles can be turned upside down. It's a moment of release, right? Where men can, can freely express emotions, can break free of the bonds of their mothers and instead replace them onto the saint herself in this one moment. And so in a way, you know, the, the festival becomes this place out of time and out of space in the same way like the TV episode two breaks those, wow. those structures and allows for this freedom um, to, to both navigate and to upend right. uh, gender norms and right. roles. Right. Yeah. Because Montalbano is always, uh, in fact, one of the last episodes is when he falls in love with another woman, actually, mm -hmm. and then he decides to to keep supporting, right, Livia, because they at some point had lost the child that they mm -hmm. both loved. But that was not enough to get married, right? So the idea that they're constantly staying on their own because they cannot adapt to compromise, mm -hmm. right? And that becomes part of the deal. So Montalbano becomes this, you know, Luca Zingaretti, who is not exactly, you know, this kind of Adonis, but becomes the quintessential Italian man mm -hmm. who is, yes, I mean, kind of a bit of a chauvinist, but not too much, right? Uh, is somebody who respects women, but still, right, has his own peccadilloes mm -hmm. on the side uh, and understands and even exploits, for instance, Augello's, uh, you know, womanizing mm -hmm. when he needs somebody to you know, interrogate a, uh, a witness or something and uh, she's a beautiful woman, he sends, you know, he sends Ojello and, you know, and says, you know, just persuade her. Um, so. No, and, and that may be Camilleri's greatest gift, yeah. that the, it, the, the quintessential Italian everyman is Sicilian. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Caminari, incidentally, was married for like 70 years or something, right? Uh, and uh, kept saying that the best day of his life was when he, when he got married to his wife, who is still alive. Uh, she's 93 now, and he died two years ago. Uh, so, and Camilleri, I think, identified, he was not too happy with the casting at the very beginning, mm. and then he got, you know, he really liked it. But he identifies with Montalbano, but he looks like the doctor, right? In real life, he <laughs> did look like the doctor more than Montalbano, this kind of disheveled, right, man, you know, this big, overweight man, you know, constantly disheveled. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting projection, right, that Camilleri, you know, does with, and, and you're right, I mean, Montalbano is the quintessential Italian man, <laughs> you know, for better or for worse. <laughs> Ah, yes. Yeah. Um, so I would like to open to some questions, if, if possible, and have people uh, comment on the film or say something about the film. Hi. So uh, I just first wanted to say thank you for speaking to us, for taking your time out tonight. This was really interesting and informative to learn about Italian TV. And something that really uh, picked my interest was the fact that you two talked about how for this show, there were 37 episodes in 15 seasons, which is like two to three per season, yeah. and which is completely different from American television. Mm -hmm. 
And I was just kind of wondering, would were Italian TV shows, would their productions be almost treated as if they were not movies, kind of? Would it ta- or would they, would they be kind of put together shorter they, so the actors could pursue other projects in the year? Would it, and it, I'm just kind of, if that makes any sense. Well, it, it, it does make sense. Uh, the BBC does something very similar, right? Uh, remember that television is sponsored by um, taxpayers. So in that sense, I mean, they have the money whether they're making them or not. Um, if, you, if you've ever waited for uh, Sherlock to come back at, you know, at the BBC, you know, I mean, we waited for two years one time. Uh, some of my favorite programs, I mean, you have to really, you know, wait until they, they, they get around to it. Um, but that's, uh, that's uh, exactly the point. I mean, there is a subscription that people have to pay for, and it is a national uh, subscription. And now I think it is uh, charged even on your, on your electric bill or something. You can't avoid it because people were trying to kind of pretend they didn't have a TV or something. Oh, there's nothing to see here. Um, but so now, I mean, you, everybody has to pay because obviously many uh, don't have a television set anymore. It's digital. It's all on the computer. Uh, and, but that, but that is the, uh, the form. These are really feature films. So if you think about it, you know, it would be probably the same length of six or seven episodes in, in, in another format. But, yeah, I mean, they, they do three, you know, maximum four uh, per, per year, per season. I found it interesting how they um, went back and forth and threw in Sicilian words and sometimes didn't. Right. It was completely inconsistent. Even, um, even Montalbano sometimes says... Um, bambino, sometimes he says bicirido, right. which is Sicilian. And right. uh, I just, I, when I read the books, I don't remember seeing that many Sicilian words in the books. Am I wrong? Am I forgetting? Uh, did you read them in English or in Italian? I read, read them in English, yeah. Uh, they probably would translate them mm-hmm. because they it's They do very... have a back, at the back, they often have Sicilian mm-hmm. words, if you, if you right. recall. The, the tr- right. <laughs> They, right. they translate them. And how does that play with the northern Italian audience? The... I'm, I'm an example of, yes. of that. I had to learn it. You had to learn it. Okay. You know, you just Thank learned you. it. I mean, there are some Cabazzisi, and, and yeah, I mean, I have to... Well, it's the context is usually... And you're right in, in the sense that uh, they were... Um, they were using inconsistently. But if, if, you, if you think about it, Montalbano often uses the, the dialect when he's with people that he knows. Mm-hmm. When he is in his official capacity, right, mm-hmm. he uses Italian, which is the lingua franca, right, for, for business mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. But for instance, the conversation when he is asking the fishermen mm-hmm. to actually go in and, and mm-hmm. verify whether or not that cadaver has been there for a week, right, that is entirely in, uh, in dialect. Mm-hmm. I have to read the books out loud yeah. uh, to understand because yeah. they're written yeah. in, in, Itali- in the dialect form. That's right. So, I mean, I have to yeah. mouth it out. I mean, yeah. I have to say it so that I can hear the rhythm and, mm-hmm. and go for it. So it's a, great, it's a really great gift because there are some... Um, uh, Sicily didn't have, you know, a uh, kind of theater that went all over mm-hmm. Italy. Naples did. 
right? Naples did, and Naples had a long tradition of using dialect, of sprinkling it, right, and doing entire plays mm -hmm. in, in dialect. But uh, Sicily has been, you know, more kind mm -hmm. of cut off from uh, the uh, literary circuit in that sense. And, and there are in Sicily 12 distinct dialect subgroups, and several of them have been named by UNESCO as heritage languages right. now. Right. And there are many, you know, many dialects. I mean, you say Italy was unified, you know, in 1861. And every time I go like, not ours, <laughs> because <laughs> until 1870, the corner, right, mm. where I grew up, um, that was not there. <laughs> and so I'm going like, okay, you know, there was a little bit to wait. Uh, but um, the dialect I used to speak, I mean, I can speak, uh, is not understood by the rest of Italy. There are many uh, sub-languages as well, even within, uh, within mm -hmm. the dialects. So. Yeah. And I guess and to make a point, too, about Sicily, Sicily historically had a number of conquerors, if right. you will, so from, right. and the, the language reflects that. So there are words that come from Arabic, from Greek, from French, from right. Italian, and, from, uh, so, and you hear that. Uh, both in the sound of the language and also in the syntax and the, the phonetics and phonology right. as well. And the Greeks, the Normans, mm -hmm. right, and all the, uh, all the invasions, absolutely. All right, thank you. Thank you, Stephanie, and thank, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Um, You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.